0: Father, would you give us grace to feel the depth of your mercy, to be ready to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, to be renewed in mind, that we might resist conformity, but enjoy the transforming power of your spirit. And Lord, in particular, we ask that you would give us grace to think of ourselves with sober judgment not more highly than we ought but in accordance with the grace that you've given to us and lord we pray that you would cause us to love the body to love the church and to find our our role our place to exercise our gifts that christ might be exalted that he might fill all things and that the body might build itself up in love. We pray this for the sake of your great name, for the good of our souls, for our lost neighbors and friends and coworkers. Lord, Lord, we pray that you would use our church and that there would be an evangelistic harvest among us. We love you and we bring these requests to you confident that you are able, in Christ's name, amen. I don't know if this story is true, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, I heard this story about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson. And the story goes that it was uh, Magic's rookie year, and the first game of the year, and the game came down to a last second shot, which I think it was Kareem scored the last bucket uh, to put the Lakers ahead, and, and they won, just in the you know as time expired in this first NBA game of Magic's first season. And Magic is going nuts, you know, he's jumping up and down, he's hugging Kareem, and he's celebrating, and and Kareem just sort of looks at him and he says, calm down, rookie, we got another 81 games to play. And that's kind of what Paul is saying to us here in Romans 12.3. I would invite you to open this morning to Romans 12.3, and Paul says here, he says in Romans 12.3, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. This is a word that every one of us needs to hear because in various ways, for various reasons, we are all inclined to think more of ourselves than we really ought to. We're we're all inclined to have this narrow focus on how good at something we are and we don't realize what Blaise Pascal noted when he said, how many worlds there are that know nothing of us. We, we are tremendously, in reality, we are tremendously insignificant. And so Paul is urging us to think rightly about ourselves. As we approach this passage that we'll look at this morning together, Romans 12, 3 through 8, uh, just a word about about where we are in the book of Romans. Paul has, he's done a lot of theology in chapters one through 11. He's, he's come to this climactic uh, celebration of God's mercy at the end of Romans 11. And then as we saw last week, he has urged uh, the Roman Christians and, and all of his audience to offer their bodies as living sacrifices in 12.1. And then he speaks to them about being transformed by the renewal of their minds in 12.3. And then in, I'm sorry, 12.2. And then in 12.3, he speaks to them about how they're to think. And then beginning in 12.4, he's going to talk about the body of Christ. So there's kind of a body, mind, think, body thing going on here. Uh, Body in 12.1, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Be renewed in mind, 12.2, and then here's how you should think about yourself so that you can relate appropriately to the body of Christ in 12.4 and following. So look with me here at Romans 12.3, and notice, notice how many times the word think comes up. He says, by the grace given to me, which I think is an important thing for us to note because it tells us That Paul is speaking directly to his audience on the basis of the grace that God has given to him. So God has given Paul grace to discern something that this, this audience of Roman Christians needs to hear. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each in accordance, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This would have been a profoundly countercultural thing for Paul to say. Because, as Robert Lewis Wilkin notes in this book entitled, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them, the sensibilities of the Romans were different from ours. They openly praised their own accomplishments and were not embarrassed to seek glory which maybe that's not so different from ours if you look at Facebook or Twitter or something like this today. But, but the Romans, they were, they were frank about their, their self-promotion. It was part of their culture. If you were going to be a Roman who was, who was going to ascend through the ranks of society, you had to let everyone know how good you were at everything that you had done. You had to let everyone know what you had accomplished. And Paul says to these Christians... Not to think, everyone among you is not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. This is what it looks like, 12.2, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And with our society, that is a wash in social media. You know, there's sort of this culture that that starts to form as, as you read other people's tweets or as you look at other people's posts and you start to think hey, it's normal to do this. It's normal for me to alert everyone to my accomplishments. It's normal for me to let everyone know how skilled I am at woodworking or crafts or whatever it is in your case. It's normal for me to show everyone my prowess. And, and it can be easy to slip into this self-congratulatory, self-promoting, everyone look at how good I am way of thinking. We have to resist, Twelve two Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then the first thing Paul starts talking about, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but to think with sober judgment. And it's interesting how in this verse, Romans twelve three, it's like Paul equips us to do that. Paul, if we ask him, Paul, what does it look like? to think with sober judgment about ourselves. It's like Paul is saying, don't measure yourselves by worldly standards. So don't look at your prowess, whether that's athletic prowess or academic prowess or professional, don't look at your prowess. Don't look at the results that can be measured in worldly terms. Don't look at your wealth that you've accumulated, don't look at your your looks. Don't congratulate yourself for your style or your wit or any of these worldly measures. Look at what he says at the end of verse 12, verse chapter 12 verse 3. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It's like Paul says, you want to compare yourselves with one another? Use the measure of faith that God has assigned as the measuring rod. And what this does is it it affirms the gospel, right? Because it says, we're talking about the faith, right? Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised from the dead on the third day, which really cuts us all down to size. We're We're all sinners. We all needed none less than Jesus Christ himself to die for us. And then I think, though, that it's not just the gospel that's there also, but it's also, I think there's this, this the measure of faith that God has assigned. That word assigned has a connotation of being apportioned. So I think Paul is talking about your relative amount of confidence in God. How confident are you in God? And if we're going to compare ourselves by how confident we are in God, well, the point is not us, is it? The point is God. So so we want to think of ourselves with relationship to one another on the basis of, according to the standard of, how confident are we in the Lord? So we're to think of ourselves with sober judgment according to, look at that that line again at the end of verse 3, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And let's just think a little bit more about this. Because saving faith is justifying and sanctifying faith. And that is, that is inherently humiliating. Because to come to saving faith, you have to come to a place where you recognize, I need to be saved. And, and to be a person who's, who's asking the question, how confident am I in God? You're acknowledging, I'm not the point here. I'm not the one I'm conscious of. I'm not the one I'm confident in. It's, it's God who is the Savior. It's God who is the Holy One. So justifying saving saving faith is saving faith that liberates us from the need to justify ourselves by our performance. So when you're tempted, if you're tempted, to look at your coworker or your, your fellow student or another mom in the room or or whatever the case may be you're tempted to look over there and think maybe it's an athlete he's a lot faster than i am maybe it's a mom her kids are a lot better behaved than mine are justifying faith says that's not where my standing comes from my standing comes from jesus i'm i'm rightly related to jesus and i'm confident in god and i'm liberated from these comparisons. And I don't need to justify myself by my performance. Nor do I need to establish my worth in any kind of worldly way. Saving faith is liberating faith. Justifying faith is faith that knows my sins are forgiven, my conscience is cleansed, my guilt is assuaged. And if you, if you want to know how you have this, you can simply ask yourself the question, are you at rest in the Lord? Am I at rest in the Lord? Am I at peace with God and my brothers and sisters because my confidence is in God? This is also a sanctifying faith because this faith believes that God has established what is good and God has established what is evil. And this faith believes what the Bible says about what's evil. So the world, the flesh, the devil, the, wor- the world is saying, don't be conformed to the world. The world is saying, evil is fun. Evil is exciting. Evil is intriguing. Evil is enticing. And, and the Bible is saying, no, evil is going to kill you. And saving faith is sanctifying faith because you're ready to say, the Bible says that's evil, and the Bible is testifying to me that that's going to destroy me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run from it. And the Bible also promises that there's joy in holiness. It doesn't always look that way, does it? Sometimes it looks like holiness amounts to the crucifixion of our flesh and our desires. But the Bible promises joy from that. Saving faith is sanctifying faith because you believe even in spite of the appearances. Uh, this is also this this faith, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I submit to you that this all this is also going to be a church building faith. because this this faith, so again, Romans twelve three, Paul says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This saving, justifying faith will also be a church-building faith because this is a faith that is confident that the gospel is going to bear fruit. And if you're confident that the gospel is going to bear fruit, you know what you're going to do? You're going to ask the Lord to, to cause the fruit to come. Lord, we want to reap some of this harvest. Lord... We, we want to enter into the fields where others have labored before us. And, and we want to see this fruit. And then you're going to invite people to come here for these evangelistic events that we're holding. Mike Francis is running a Christianity Explained course. Maybe you'll get involved in that with him. And you'll be bold to share the gospel with people. Because you're confident in God. Because you're confident that he is going to build the church. This is is a church-building faith also in that you're going to be prepared to give, you're going to be prepared to go, and you're going to be prepared to serve, all of which we'll we'll talk about more as we proceed through this passage. Paul is talking in Romans 12.3 about confidence in God, not self. And he's talking about consciousness of God, Not self. So we're not conscious of ourselves. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. We're conscious of God. Think with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has assigned. Consciousness of God. And this is a faith that is confident that God is going to save, transform, provide, and preserve. Look with me at verse 4. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5, actually. Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So it's easy to imagine what Paul's talking about. He's saying you got an elbow, you got a knee, you got a foot. They don't all do the same thing, but they're all part of the same body. As in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. This is beautiful, isn't it? David Peterson writes of this this verse, the unity of Christ's body is actually characterized by diversity. The unity is characterized by diversity. Diversity. Your hand is different from your knee, but they're part of the same body, aren't they? I wonder if you've looked around here, and marvelled at the diversity that God has brought together. You know, there there are people. I'm not. I'm not necessar- I'm going to name some names here in just a moment. I hope nobody's offended by that. But there are people in this room who have es- escaped genocide. There are people in this room who have escaped killing fields in their home countries. There is. A, there are people in this room who who were sent to this country as religious refugees. This is a, there's an amazing amount of diversity in this room, and I would encourage you to talk to people and to learn their stories. If you don't know, I'm just going to go through some names here. If you don't know Bowie and Kaifan and Joyce... Matt Pierce, I mean, Matt Pierce represents a lot of diversity, right? He's the only last name I'm going to give you. But here's a Kentucky boy with a Ph.D. in missions. That's amazing. That's amazing. And he's part of our church. Hallelujah. Dr. Matt Pierce. You should go talk to him. Yelena, Riasat, Shella, me, uh, Swati, Wesley, Melanie, Tyler, Dana, Jamie, and F. There is a lot Diversity. There are a lot of countries represented in this room. All different, but all renewed, transformed in mind, all part of the same body, all having different gifts, and every one of these gifts necessary for the health of the body. So we want to we wanna resist conformity to the world and and conformity to to conformity to the world. On some of these things, as in one body, we have many members. The members don't all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one one of another. Uh, Conformity to the world, I think, amounts to looking at diversity the way the world does. And that's not hard to find. We see that all around us all the time. We don't want to think about diversity the way the world thinks about diversity. We want to think about the diversity of the body... The way that Paul is instructing us to think about it here. We have many members. There's a lot of diversity. And, you know, if you think about your body, some of your body parts are, you got two hands. They kind of look like each other, right? But they don't look like your nose, right? And so diversity is going to be diversity. And we want to think about this this stuff in scriptural ways. And we want to think in terms of all of us being. Living sacrifices. We want to think with sober ju- judgment, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 4 here, because it's a similar passage. We, we opened with uh, Paul's assertion. We opened the service this morning with Paul's assertion. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then a few verses later, Paul writes this. He says that the Lord Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And and he says that in doing this, in in verse 10, he actually says that, that Jesus who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So that's Christ's purpose. Christ wants to fill all things with his glory. And then he goes on and he says that these gifts are given, these gifted These people are given as gifts, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And I think that's related to Christ filling all things, us attaining to the unity of the faith. So in part, this entails us spurring one another on to greater confidence in God. It also entails us communicating clearly The the faith that has been entrusted to us. I would urge you to come on Wednesday night. Matt's going to be teaching on the attributes of God. This is central to the faith. We're trying to attain to the unity of the faith so that we think rightly about who God is. And this is that Christ might fill all things until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We want to know Jesus. We want to attain to the unity of the faith so that we can know the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, listen to these words, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I think that's another way for Paul to talk about Christ filling all things. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ as we attain to the unity of the faith, as we know the Son of God, and as, as Christ fills all things. And then a few, few words later, Paul says in verse 15 of Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. So we're growing up into Christ. And then at the end of verse 15, 16, Paul speaks of the body growing so that it builds itself up in love. This is our objective. This is what we're after. In all this diversity, the body is working together so that we're building ourselves up in love. And back in Romans 12, Paul is going to talk about what that looks like. He's going to talk about how we go after that. And and the way that we go after that is through the use of these spiritual gifts that have been given to us. So, the tasks that Paul is setting for Christians here are tasks that can only be accomplished by the power of the gospel. You're not going to live out, we're not going to live out Romans 12, 1 to 8, or Romans 12 through 15, unless Romans 1 to 11 has taken roots in us. We're not going to live, we're not going to be able to offer our bodies as living sacrifices unless we can say with Paul in Romans 5:1 having then been justified by faith. We have access into this grace in which we now stand. So so we have to we have to get the gospel right, and then we have to remember that Paul is calling us, summoning us to this behavior by mercy, and that this is happening, we're we're pursuing these things as we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, and as we pursue resisting conformity to the world, being transformed by the renewing of our mind thinking not more highly of ourselves than we ought, but according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned, and then thinking in this renewed way about the body and the many members of it. Individually, at the end of verse 5, members one of another. So we should think about one another the way that earlier this year, as many of you know, I, uh, I was in a, an accident. I was on a four-wheeler and I got I was actually on a, a motorcycle and I got slammed into by a four-wheeler and my hand was really tender. And it wasn't hard for me to avoid overusing my hand because I knew the pain. My knee was really tender. It wasn't hard for me to avoid overusing my knee because my knee was hurting. We have to be a, aware of one another. We're, if we're individually members one of another, if, uh, if one part of, as Paul says elsewhere, if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers together. We can feel each other's pain, but that's only going to happen if we talk to each other. It's only going to happen if we relate to one another. It's only going to happen if we're actually caring about one another. So I would urge you not only to look around and notice the diversity that God has brought together and 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 learn from one another about the diversity that God has brought together. You know, there, there's a member of this church who's, um, he's, from Oak, um, he's from Oklahoma, and a native speaker of Hindi tells me that, his, that this guy from Oklahoma, his Hindi is better than the native speakers. We, they're, they're, there's amazing diversity in this church, but you're only going to know this if you talk to each other. If you, and we're, we're only going to be able to feel one another's pain and, and relate to one another individually members one of another If we're actually connected to one another's lives. And then we live this out in verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Look how similar that phrase in verse 6 there. According to the grace given to us is to the one in verse 3. By the grace given to me. You know what Paul's doing here in Romans 12? He's exercising his spiritual gifts. According to the grace given to me, I'm going to speak this truth into your life. And then he says... Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And now he's going to start walking through this this list of spiritual gifts and telling us how we can live together as a body. So he starts with with prophecy. But before before I go through these seven gifts that Paul lists, let me just say that there, there, there are only seven gifts listed here. And this list is different from other lists. Recently, Denny went through uh, the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. There's a different set of gifts listed there. And, and so these lists are not exhaustive. They're, they're representative. And the way that this list is presented, um, it, it's, it's interesting the way that Paul will, will talk about the gift and then talk about the use of the gift. So the first one, he says, if prophecy, if prophecy is your gift, look at how he tells us to exercise this gift here. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. So you should use the gift of prophecy in proportion to your faith. Um, first, let me let me say a word about the gift of, of prophecy. Um, I think from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, which Denny recently went through, I think that prophecy is revelatory, because when Paul talks about uh, prophets prophesying in that passage in 1 Corinthians 14 uh, verse 29, he says this. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to one sitting there, let the first be silent. So it sounds to me like a prophet. When he's going to exercise his gift, he's going to give a revelation. It also sounds like this gift is spontaneous. So so to contrast prophecy with teaching, Paul's going to get to the gift of teaching here in just a few words. uh, I would say that teaching is studied reflection on the scriptures, that results in an ability to explain and expound and and give the meaning of those scriptures. And that's not what prophecy is necessarily. Prophecy, from 1 Corinthians 14, 29, and 30, looks like a spontaneous revelation. It's also worth observing that you're, you're only to have two or three of these guys speak. And if another one gets a revelation, well, the first guy speaking needs to stop speaking. So the spirits of the prophets, as Paul says later in that passage, are subject to the prophets, which means just because you have the gift doesn't mean you get to exercise it in any and every circumstance, right? Another prophet gets the word. Well, you were prophesying, but you got to stop talking now and sit down because a new revelation has been given. So the the exercise of the gifts, we can say from that, is is uh, boundaried by apostolic instructions, right? And I think we can also say um, that that the gifts are to be exercised, look again at verse uh, 6 here, in proportion to our faith. In light of verse 3, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, and then if prophecy in verse 6, in proportion to our faith, I would say... um, The more confident you are in God, the more opportunity you're going to have to exercise your gift. Now, about the gift of prophecy, um, I think that Paul was writing to these churches, both the churches in Rome, churches in Corinth, and other churches. I think he was writing at a time when prophets were actually receiving from the Lord new revelations. I think that has stopped. I'm a cessationist. I don't think that uh, God continues to give people revelatory prophecies, but that doesn't mean we can't follow the spirit of this instruction today. So the the way that I would say we follow the spirit of this instruction today is that we seek to understand and communicate what God has revealed of Himself in the Scriptures. So if you want to if you want to exercise. Uh, a a prophetic-like gift today, you should seek to understand the revelation of, of God made in the Scriptures, and then seek opportunities to communicate that in proportion to your faith. So the greater your confidence in God, the greater your opportunity to exercise your gift. So, do you trust God... To give growth when you exercise the gift that he gave you. Are you trusting God as you seek to exercise the spiritual gifts that you've been given? That's that's what we want to pursue. We want to pursue the exercise of our gifts in proportion to our faith. And Paul moves to service in verse 7. If service, in our serving. So it's like he's saying, if you've got the gift of service, serve. Serve. That's what you need to do. Um, Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. And he himself illustrated that by washing the feet of his disciples. And you remember, you know this passage. He said, if I have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I think what he's saying is, if I'm going to serve you, you all need to be serving one another. Um, when I was at when I worked at Connecticut camps when I was in college, um, a great illustration of this was a man named Joe White who ran the camp. And Joe was he he owned the camp, he ran the camp, and and he was just a great man. He was a wonderful man, and he was an inspiring speaker. And he was somebody that everybody wanted to spend time with, and and he was somebody that you knew he was ready to serve you at any moment. One time, I, I saw Joe, and he had this T-shirt on that I thought was a cool T-shirt, and in the, in the Kanakuk uh, sort of economy, um, um, exotic or cool T-shirts are, are something everybody, everybody prized, everybody valued, and I, I said, hey, Joe, I really like that T-shirt. He goes, really? He pulls it off, and he throws it to me. He goes, it's yours. The man, I mean, literally, he served me by giving me the shirt off his back, and that was characteristic of how this man lived. He was a servant. Another great illustration of this, of this, of this Christ-like servant-hearted leadership, was brought home to me the first time I went to a weekender at Capitol Hill Baptist Church and watched Mark Dever. I'm thrilled that our interns get to go there to a weekender in, in September. And, and what really became evident to me on that trip was that Mark wasn't necessarily like putting up the chairs or sweeping the floors, or, you know, taking out the trash. But in everything that he was doing, in his conversations, in his preparations to preach, in everything that he was doing, he was deliberately attempting to serve other people. That's what it was all about. It wasn't about his reputation. It wasn't about people thinking he was clever. It was about him trying to serve people. So if you have the spiritual gift of service, serve. Next in verse 7 there, the one who teaches. Again, I think teaching comes from careful reflection on the Scriptures and prepared explanation of the Scriptures. The one who teaches. Notice also how the first several gifts, if prophecy, if service, uh, Those start with if, and then there's no if here in the middle of verse 7. It just goes to the one who teaches. The one who teaches in his teaching. So if you have the gift of teaching, you should look for opportunities to teach. It's interesting. there, There are some places in the New Testament where, like for instance in 1 John 2, where John says, you won't need a teacher. But here clearly, Paul is saying, people have the spiritual gift of teaching. And they should exercise that spiritual gift, which I think gives some insight that Paul is, I mean, John is in 1 John 2, 27, is not uh, categorically excluding teachers. The one who teaches in his teaching, verse 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. You know, it's interesting in the passage that we read earlier in the service in Acts 11, uh, Barnabas shows up to those new believers. Do you remember what it says Barnabas does? He exhorts them to continue in the grace. that that was given to them. This exhortation, this is actually the same verb used in Romans 12.1 when Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. You could render that, I exhort you, therefore, brothers. So Paul, in this passage, is exhorting. In Acts 11, Barnabas was exhorting. There's an urging of people to apply the gospel to their lives, and and this often is done in emotionally compelling ways that engage their affections hebrews 13:22 the author of hebrews calls the whole letter an exhortation he says i exhort you to bear with the word of exhortation so paul says here he says the one who exhorts in his exhortation so if you have the gift the spiritual gift of exhortation you should exhort And then the next one surprises me. In the middle of verse 8, the one who contributes. Isn't that interesting that Paul considers giving, and and I think this is financial contributions to the work of the ministry, Paul considers this a spiritual gift. That's amazing. But if you think about it, the, the way that you get to the place where you can exercise the spiritual gift of giving is really not that different from the way that you get to the place where you can exercise the spiritual gift, let's say, of teaching. In order to be able to teach, you have to work hard to study. You have to prepare. In order to exercise the spiritual gift of giving, you have to work. It's like Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 in verse 28 when he says, let the, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You want to have the spiritual gift of giving? Get to work. Earn some money. Be prepared to give. So the one who contributes in generosity. Um, my pastor, when I was in college, a man named H.D. McCarty, pastor of University Baptist Church, he would always share, and I don't, I don't think this was um, you know, him doing any kind of self-promotion, but he would always share how the Lord had convicted him early on in his life that any time a plate was passed in any meeting was, that he was in, any, any Christian meeting, any time a plate was passed, he should put something in it. And he testified, and he was, at the, you know, when I knew it, he's even older now, when I knew him, he was in his 70s, and he testified, the Lord has always met my financial needs. He said, he said since that time when I became convicted that every time the plate was passed, I should put something in it, He said, I have never lacked financially. The Lord has always met every financial need that we ever had. The Lord honors those who honor him. HD told a story about how one time he was in a meeting and and they got ready to pass the plate. And um, he he sort of made, you know how you do these little bargains with God. Lord, I'm gonna give whatever I pull out of my pocket. And he said, and wouldn't you know it, I pulled out a $100 bill. And I just groaned and he said, "But I gave it and 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 I mean I have been old and not I've been young and now i'm an old I'm old, and I've never seen the righteous hungry or his children begging bread. The Lord provides uh, related, related to this spiritual gift, the one who contributes in generosity, I just want to uh, put out here that um, some of you know we've been planning a uh, a renovation of the downstairs area over where the the, uh, Watson, Breland, Birch Sunday School class meets. That whole area is gonna be renovated. And um, we've looked at the numbers and and, um, what we wanna do is we wanna wanna ask for $50,000 in contributions. And if we receive that, then we'll go forward with the full renovation. Um, So we need $50,000. And uh, we need we need some people to exercise this spiritual gift of contributing, um, and so I would I would encourage you to to pray about whether the Lord might prompt you to give to this. Um, Gabe is in in coming weeks. Gabe is going to hold some informational uh, meetings where uh, the whole plan is going to be laid out of of exactly what's going to happen in the renovation. I, I think it'll be a a really good thing. The, the big thing is the bathrooms are going to be renovated, and, and it's wonderful to have clean restrooms at a church, so we're, we're excited about that, and we trust that the Lord's going to provide. You know, the, the money is no obstacle to God. God, God has plenty at, at His disposal. Are we confident in Him? Are we ready to exercise this spiritual gift confident in God in proportion to our faith? Uh, we also want to support those who have gone out from us to the, to the mission field, and, and you know that recently I've encouraged you to be thinking about how to contribute to the Lottie Moon offering, so I would encourage you to, to factor that in as well. We want to be confident in the Lord to provide, and we want to exercise the spiritual gifts that God has given to us. As Americans, we are fabulously wealthy, amazingly wealthy. Are we leveraging what has been entrusted to us for the cause of the gospel? Are we living like we believe the gospel? Uh, Next in verse 8, the one who leads with zeal. I'll just be honest with you. I've been looking forward to this since this sermon started. Because as I thought about the one who leads with zeal, I couldn't help but think about Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill he led with zeal, and I just wanna read you some of these quotations uh, from, from Winston Churchill. You know, he, he came to power as, as the Nazis had, had swept over France, and they were now threatening the island of England. And, and um, uh, Churchill, uh, the, the previous administration had been um, uh, trying to appease Adolf Hitler, And um, you you can't appease someone like Hitler. He's just going to take and take and take. And and Churchill knew that, that England had to stand up to Hitler. And if they didn't stand up, they would be enslaved, just as the French had been. And so to the war cabinet, Churchill said, I have thought carefully in these last days whether it was part of my duty to consider entering into negotiations with that man. He didn't even name Adolf Hitler that man. And he continues that he concluded... If this Long Island story of ours is to end at last, let it end only when each one of us lies choking in his own blood upon the ground. In other words, they're going to have to kill every last one of us to take us. And then he warned his family to prepare for invaders, and his son's wife, Pamela, protested, But Papa, what can I do? To which Churchill growled. You can always get a carving knife from the kitchen and take one with you, can't you? <laughs> and it just goes on this way. The man, was prepared. the man was prepared to fight to the end. He led with zeal. And you know, I think one of the reasons we like that so much, one of the reasons I like this so much, is because this is the way that Jesus led, isn't it? Jesus led to the end. He loved his disciples to the end, all the way to the cross. So the one who leads with zeal. So those of us in this room who are entrusted with opportunities to lead, elders, my fellow elders, fathers, husbands, if you, if, or others lead, whatever capacity in which you lead, lead with zeal. And then lastly here, the one who does acts of mercy. I think the kind of acts of mercy that Paul has in view are things like visiting the sick, helping the downtrodden, counseling the despondent, maybe the depressed, attending funerals, these kinds of things. And look at what, what Paul says. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, with cheerfulness. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get down. It's easy to be To be dragged into a kind of discouragement yourself. And Paul says, pursue the exercise of that gift with cheerfulness. Never be flagging in your optimistic confidence in God. We're to be living sacrifices. And this is what it looks like for us to pursue the renewal of our minds, the, exercise of the exercising the ways that God has gift us, gifted us in these ways, this is what it looks like to think soberly, to use our gifts for the body. At the end of, near the end of his life, Churchill was asked by the wife of his physician. He, he had this physician that attended him um, all the time and, and the, the, the worst year The year that it looked darkest for Great Britain was 1940. That was the year that the Germans nightly flew over the cities of England and dropped bombs, and uh, Parliament was blown up, and um, a lot of people were evacuated from London because of all the bombing. It it looked really dark. It looked like the Germans could come over the channel at any time. And that was the year... I'm going to read you this other thing that, that really characterizes Churchill's leadership. He said... He said, it was the nation and the race dwelling all around the globe that had the lion's heart. I had the luck to be called upon to give the roar. And then uh, the the author of this book writes of Churchill that the people, the people of England, were kindled by his soaring prose and came to see themselves as he saw them and emerged a people transformed. The admiration of free men everywhere. In other words, this stirring rhetoric of Winston Churchill lifted these people up and enabled them to fight. And at the end of his life, he was asked, what year would you live over? And he responded, 1940. 1940 every time. In the darkest moments, if we walk with God, those will be the best moments in the hardest times, if the Lord is with us, those will be the best times. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for giving us something greater than ourselves to live for. Lord, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. And Lord, we praise you for the way that this gospel cuts across everything that divides people. It cuts across our heritage, where we came from, what language we grew up talking. It, it, it unites all kinds of people. Lord, we praise you for this gospel. And we praise you for the fruit of this unifying gospel that we see in our midst. We praise you for the way that you have You have gathered together here people from every tribe and and tongue and nation. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to think with sober judgment of ourselves. Not in worldly ways, but in a transformed way. In accordance with the measure of faith that you've assigned to us. And God, I pray that you would cause us to be those who want to grow in our confidence. Our confidence in who you are our confidence in your ability. And then, Lord, I pray that you would help us to discern what our gifting is and then to exercise these giftings that we might teach and exhort and do acts of mercy and contribute and serve all in ways that that please you and that exalt the Lord Jesus. Make us a church, Lord. We owe everything to you, and we thank you for Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.